If you're new here this morning, um, we've kind of been working our way through a series called And Then They Prayed, and we're just looking at different places in Scripture where, uh, where prayer is like the, the hinge point, where a story will turn a corner because of prayer. And this morning, we're taking a little bit of a different turn on the same subject, and I'm taking, instead of a story, an entire book of the New Testament. If you went back to the, what we call the Protestant Reformation about 500 years ago, actually 502 years ago, almost, um, was when it sort of started out. Martin Luther, of course, you know, if you're familiar with Protestant Reformation history, you, you know the story of Luther walking up to the door of, of, the, of All Saints Church there in Wittenberg and, and nailing his 95 theses to the door of the church and it set off what we call the Protestant Reformation. And, in, and if you read the history of that, you would read that there were like points of contention in the, the, the coming years, you know, especially the next 20, 30, 50, even 100 years, that there were issues that were points of contention. Because people were sort of waking up to a new reality that has been actually an old reality and returning to something that felt new to them but was in fact old to the church. And that was just simply the reality that God saves sinful men by His grace alone. And that it's not because of the stuff that we did, it's not because of our good works that we are saved, it's because of what He did that we are saved. And that was like... It felt to them and to many of those people like a completely new concept. It wasn't a new concept at all. It was just that they had been in what we continue to call the Dark Ages, uh, an age or a period of church history where there was not a, a, a common awareness of God's grace. And Luther, God bless him, he just kind of forced it into the spotlight. And then, follow, then guys followed him, like guys like John Calvin and, and uh, Zwingli. There's just a whole bunch of guys that we call the Reformers. And they argued over these issues. They argued over things like, like when we take communion, is, you know, and, and you pray before communion, does it become the literal body and blood of Christ, or doesn't it? You know, it's transubstantiation, and then there was people who believed in consubstantiation, and which was that it doesn't actually become the literal, but it kind of develops the presence of it. And then, you know, then there's this group that just said, no, it's just all symbolic. It doesn't really have any magical thing. Nothing magical happens, which is probably kind of where we would land, um, but that there's a symbolism in it. And, um, you know, they argued over things like, should we baptize babies or should we baptize adults? Um, that, that hasn't continued, can completely been settled. We've just sort of reached a point in church history where some people do baptize babies. We baptize adults. I'm, I'm, I'm unapologetic. I believe in, in baptizing somebody based on their choice to follow Jesus Christ. And um, I have very dear friends who baptize babies, and, um, and I give them permission to be wrong. <laughs> um, so, um, one of the issues, um, you know, that they, that they wrestled with was, should the church exercise violent force or disciplinary measures as soon as someone steps out of line? Like, is it okay for the church to just take someone who is out of line and kill them? Like, chop their head off, and maybe even some torture in the process. 
Thankfully, we settled that issue. Like, I'm grateful that we settled that issue. Had we not settled that issue, I'm relatively sure that I would not be alive today. That, settled, that issue kind of got settled at some point. One of the other points of contention along the Reformation was, does God sovereignly sort of zap us with grace, predestine us whether we want or not don't want salvation, and, and sort of just impose it on us, or did we choose him? In other words, in a more simplistic term, did God choose us or did we choose him? And they contended with that issue, and they continue to contend with that issue. That issue has never been sort of brought to a point where everyone said, we all agree, it's like this. In fact, that issue has created some of the denominations and some of the splits and groups that we see today. And the subject of God's sovereignty and the free will or the responsibility of men continues to be a kind of a hot-button issue, and you would actually have to be a fool to try to preach it on a Sunday morning, but here I am. <laughs> We're going to try it. If you're expecting a, a kind of a, a nice, tidy package where you walk out of here and you're like, man, he just did what no theologian or group of theologians has been able to do in one half-hour message on a Sunday morning, you're going to leave kind of disappointed. Because we've got, you know, we've got terms like Calvinism, you know, which, which would lean more towards you know, predestination and, 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 um, and the grace of God sort of, sort of being something that's irresistible, and I could go into a lot of explanation of that. I'm not going to. You have you know, what we know of as Arminianism, which is heavier on human choice and free will, and those two kind of contend with each other, and there are groups that are so proud of their label that, that we are this way or we are this way and you know, kind of demonize the other side. The reality of it is, and the uncomfortable truth for both, is that there are places in Scripture that you could capitalize on and come to those conclusions on both sides of that issue if we were intellectually honest. But if you bring a lot of presuppositions to the text, in other words, you've identified with a camp or a label, and you say, no, I am this way, and I bring all of my presuppositions to the text, then you tend to sort of force every text into your box. And you say it has to fit in here, and so we just kind of ignore the stuff that doesn't quite fit, and we bring in the stuff that does fit, and we capitalize on that, and we've been guilty of doing that for a long, long time. And sometimes, and oftentimes, in fact, we do it subconsciously. You're like, what in the world does that have to do with prayer? Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to go to the book of Ephesians, and I want to look at this issue and how it plays out in what we call spiritual warfare and how it answers the question of why we pray. You may be sitting here this morning, you're like, man, I've been sitting here listening to these messages. You know, you keep talking about prayer and You've never really talked about, in a very broad sense, like why? Like why is prayer even a thing? Like why didn't God 
just say, here's what I intend to do, and then he just does it. Like, does prayer actually change anything at all? If he's sovereign, and if there, is, if there is a plan in place that he has put in place, if it's all predestined, then why are we even praying? Is it just so that we get in line with what he's doing? Or does prayer actually change anything at all? Come on, be honest. You've, you've wrestled with this stuff. I have. Like, have you not wrestled with the question of, does it really change anything if I pray? Have you not prayed for something and believed so strongly, this is what I, I, I just think God's going to do this. I think He's going to heal this person. I think He's going to save this person. I think, I think this is going to happen. I think this is going to happen because of my prayers. And then you sit and you watch it not happen. And you start to question does it actually matter at all? Does anything change if I pray? Yeah, thank you. It does. It does. And I hope that if you don't get anything else, that you can sort of reach some resolution and that, you, that you're able to walk away with at least an answer to that question, does it matter if I pray? And I hope this morning that in a few minutes you're able to say, yes, it matters. Yes, it matters. It does change things. And yet, the reason we wrestle with that is because then we're saying, so does that mean that we actually change God's plan? Like, does that put us in charge somehow of God? Like, if I pray and things change because I prayed, then does that make me... No. It still changes things. All right, let's go. Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to pick it up in verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1. I want to just read you a section here about the sovereignty of God and His grace. Paul is writing to the Ephesian church, and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, in love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. There is a lot in that, isn't there? Another one of these run-on sentences by Paul. Like he's, he's just sort of enamored with who God is and his, and his plan and His purpose and He's predestined us. There's been a plan in place. He has planned through the ages that through Christ that this is going to all unfold, that the mystery of the gospel will unfold, that you and I will be the recipients of that mystery and the recipients of His grace because He predestined before the dawn of time that you and I would experience and know the fullness and the riches of His grace. Like, this is amazing that God had put this plan in place in His sovereignty, in His predestination, 
that he, would, that he would call us and that He would purpose us to follow Him and to believe in Him and to experience redemption and fullness of life. Like, well, that's fantastic. That means that I am absolutely passive in the process. That must mean that if God has set it all in place, then I'll take a seat and I will do nothing. Because it's all there. Right? It's true, isn't it? I mean, do we believe this stuff? Don't we believe this stuff? Like, we, like if, you're, if you're strong on free will, just the word predestination gives you sort of a twitch in the gut. You're like, I, I don't know if I like that there. Well, it's there. Deal with it. <laughs> right? Like, I'm not going to change the way it says it. I'm not going to change what it says. It's It's Scripture. And if you're, you know, if you're really strong on, on you know, sovereignty, you're like, finally, he said it. We are predestined. And what he did not say in there, and this, this may or may, you, you know, create some, some lashback. I don't really care that much. Because what he, didn't, what he did not actually say was that therefore... You have no accountability and responsibility in the process. Right? It's not there. What he also does not say is that the, therefore he also predestines some to never believe in him. And that's not said either. All it says is that he has predestined us and that he has called us and that before the dawn of time, he knew that he would unfold the riches of the gospel to us. That is good news. Just take all of the, the I don't understands out of it and just recognize what is actually said, that he actually says he called us, he predestined us, and that he is unfolding the riches of his grace before the dawn of time and that there is nothing that you did to earn it and there's nothing you can do to earn it. That is good news. We call it the gospel. That's good news. And if you're here this morning, you've never experienced the forgiveness and the redemption of God in your own personal life where you know that you have been saved by Him, that your sins are no longer accounted to you anymore because He took them onto Himself, then you know what I'm talking about. And you know just the, the, the pleasure, the, the comfort, the peace of knowing that my sins are forgiven and that they are, they are no longer accounted to me and that I have a glorious future ahead of me because of what He did, because the work was completed in Him. That is God. God's sovereign grace at work. But if you read Ephesians 1 in this section and you say, huh, that means I'm just going to coast until I die. I'm going to live however I kind of feel like because whatever I feel like must be the predestination of God. I have no choice in the matter. You better keep reading. Paul, even in that, in that chapter, or in that, uh, yeah, in that particular chapter, he says, in light of all this, in verse 15, I don't have it on the overhead, but in verse 15 he simply says, for this reason I keep praying for you. He's like, this is why I keep praying for you. 
And then he goes on and he takes the next verse and he says, I'm praying that you'll know Christ, that, you will ex- that your knowledge will expand and that you'll start to understand who he is. And Paul is just praying. He's like, God, help these people to know Jesus more. Help them to understand. Reveal yourself. He said, I'm praying for revelation for you. He said, I'm praying for a spirit of wisdom for you. I'm praying that you understand all this stuff. And he says, I'm, he's like, keep praying for you. And I'm, one of, I'm like, Paul, well, if it was all predestined, then why are you praying that it happens? It's a good question. Like Paul, he is, he is certain and confident in the, in the fullness of God's sovereignty, and he's also saying, and because of this, I am praying, and I just keep praying. He said, I don't cease to pray. And a couple chapters later, he says it again. He says, for this reason, I don't stop praying for you. I just keep praying. And he says again, he says, I'm just praying that God will un- just unfold to you the riches of his grace. I keep praying that you'll understand it more. I keep praying that you'll experience him more. He's like, I'm praying and praying. I won't stop because he's a sovereign God who grants grace based on his merit and not on ours. So I keep praying. Does that appear like a, almost a paradox? And then if it isn't enough it gets worse in Ephesians chapter 4 he starts to talk about he says I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness with patience bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace and then he goes on What's he saying? Like he just took three chapters and he just unfolds the beauty of the sovereignty of God's grace. And then he says, now, in light of all that, walk. Like do something. Walk in a manner that is worthy of the grace. You're like, well, whoa, 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 Paul, you just got done saying that we're not worthy, right? Like didn't, didn't he just say that it's not of works? But it's, it's, but it's of grace. Yes, he did. But he's also saying, now, because of this, because that is true, live it. Walk it. And, and then for the rest of Ephesians, he talks about, he says, he says walk. Walk in unity. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. Chapter 4, verses 17 to 32. Walk in integrity. Chapter 5, verses 1 to 2, walk in love. Chapter 5, verses 3 to 14, he talks about walking in light. Chapter 5, verses 15 to 20, he says walk in wisdom. Chapter 5, verses 22 to chapter 6, verse 9, he says walk in the relationships. He talks about the relationships of a husband, wife, parent, child, employer, employee. Like he just talks about, he just talks about the he's just practical teaching on all this stuff. Talks about how to walk in unity, how to walk in integrity. He talks in chapter six, verses ten to twenty. He talks about walking in victory, and we're going to go there in just a little bit. What's he saying? He's saying because of the riches of God's grace, he says, "I am praying constantly for you," and he says, "So that you would know who God is, you would know who Jesus is." And he starts to build on that, and he says, now walk like this. Now, he's not, obviously, he's not talking about 
your physical, putting your left foot in front of your right foot. He's talking about a way of living. He's talking about how you live out your life and your days as a recipient of the grace of God. He says, if you're going to live out your life as a recipient of God's grace, walk in unity, integrity, and love, and light, wisdom, relationships, walk in victory. I battle, like, like how do I, I don't even know for sure how to explain this. But let me make an attempt. You have the divine sovereignty of God at one point, and then you have human responsibility here. Keller says that where you take the divine sovereignty of God and the free will of men, and he refers to them as parallel tracks that only meet in the heart and the mind of God. And I kind of like that description. Because he says, as much as we have tried, and hours and hours have been spent, men sitting in rooms, arguing with each other, trying as best that they can to, to draw it into something that is understandable in human terms where we all say, aha, that must be it. They have failed. Because he says there is, there is an element of mystery in the sovereignty of God and the, and the responsibility or the free will, the choice of men that we battle to get our finite minds around because, in fact, it is not finite. It is infinite. In other words, it doesn't fit in our finite descriptions in our minds. However, the two are not separated from each other. They're connected to each other. They're connected to each other through faith. Like God gives us the gift of faith, we respond. God responds to our faith, right? There's a, there's a reciprocal relationship. They are connected through truth. They're connected through love. They're connected through grace, worship, and they are connected through prayer. In other words, there is, a, there is a reciprocal relationship between God and men that if you capitalize on, well, we just need to work hard and do the right thing, and we need to be people who just do the right thing, we're actually kind of in control of history here. You miss the magnitude of who God is and His sovereignty in the process. And you lose the reciprocal part of the relationship. In fact, you become, in essentially, your own God at that point. Like, if you think that we as humans are in charge of history, that we're the ones determining how history eventually turns out, you're wrong about that. But on the flip side, if you think that, it's, that all of the details are just predetermined, and that we unwittingly just keep falling into the predetermined plans, you can do that and lose the, the relational aspect of walking with God. You lose the power of relating to God as your Father and experiencing Him and the reciprocal relationship that ties us to Him. Where He extends to us His love, we reciprocate and we love not only Him but those around us. Where He extends to us grace and we reciprocate by responding to that grace. He extends to us the revelation of who He is and we, re we respond by worshiping. He extends to us authority and we respond by praying. 
He extends to us a way of relating to Him, and we respond by relating to Him in prayer. Prayer is the conduit where men and women of God relate to a holy, all-powerful, all-gracious, all-knowing God. It's the, it's the tool that He has given us. And every time, I'm, every time I'm gripped again with this reality, I realize why the enemy works so hard to keep us from praying. Because prayer is the means by which a sovereign God has chosen to bring His power to work on earth. Prayer is the means by which the grace of God is experienced in humans. Prayer is the, the tool or the activity that allows the transforming power of God to actually change us in the process. Prayer changes things. Prayer bring, brings heaven's will to earth. And isn't that what Jesus was saying? When the disciples came to him and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And what does he say? He says, pray like this. Now, he's not laying out formula. He's laying out a model. He says, pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, begin with a worship, recognition of who he is. And then he says, and I'm going to kind of um, paraphrase or, or short, kind of cut through for sake of time, but in that, in that prayer he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? That's part of what we call the Lord's Prayer. You could also call that the disciples' prayer because it was actually given to the disciples. You could call that our prayer because it was given to us. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is saying, pray like this. Pray that God would experience, his, he would watch his will being accomplished on earth as it is in heaven. You're like, well, if it's his will then why do we need to pray it? Like, why didn't Jesus just say, well, the Father has a will and a purpose and a plan. You guys are asking me for prayer. But he says, it's already done. Like, just maybe pray, God, thank you for your will. He says, no. He says, pray it. He says, ask God for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, what's the burden you carry today? Like, what is the thing that sits heavily on your heart? And you're like, well, here is what I really, really, really want God to do. Here's what I want to see happen right now on earth. And if you err on the side of, I am in control of human history, 
your prayers will actually become very human-centered. And it will all be about me, my wants, my desires, what I want to see happen in my life, what I want to see happen in other people's lives. And on the flip side, if you take almost no responsibility, you probably won't pray at all, and if you do, it'll be plastic. But if you understand that prayer is this activity that God has given us by which He accomplishes His will on earth as it is in heaven, oh my goodness, it changes everything. That means that if I don't pray, His will is not always accomplished on earth as it is in heaven. Because we live in a battleground. And that's the rest of the story. If you have your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to put that up on the overhead. And let me just say before we go, you know what? Go back one slide. I'm sorry. I wasn't done with that. I kind of wrestled with putting a graphic like that up. And here's why. It is very imperfect. If you're sitting there saying, well, that doesn't explain everything, thank you for acknowledging it. It doesn't. Um, that, that's the problem with the illustrations is they're always imperfect. And, and so, you know, so in, in attempting to communicate an idea, I mean, you know, to some degree, like the, the tracks may, might represent like an hour of your life or a day of your life, but off the screen somewhere they take a 90-degree corner or they go drop off, you know, and, and all of a sudden you're trying, you're, you know, you're not sure if we're even running together or they get wider or they get narrower or whatever. Um, you know what I'm talking about. Like there are seasons where, where it seems like my will and God's will are so close to each other, and it's like, oh my goodness, I pray and stuff happens, and God just is speaking to me, and this is wonderful, and this I just feel so close to God, and it feels like those, those tracks are so close together, and then there are those seasons where it just seems like, is he out there? Like I keep praying, and, and I, where's the closeness I once felt? The old hymn writer said, and... And we, we wonder, you know, and, and so that's the problem with some of these illustrations is they don't really accurately depict the reality of what is. Sometimes I think that one of our problems in even wrestling through this is that we think in terms of lines, you know, which I've just put up there, right? And, and maybe, maybe it looks more like a mosaic or a spider web, where like we limit God to thinking, okay, so I have option A, B, maybe C and D, and somehow I need to make a choice, and I'm trying to get a sense from God what, what's going to happen, but then somebody comes wrong, and like, God already predestined you, you already, you're, he already knows what choice you're going to make, and we're like, yeah, well, of course, you know, he does kind of foreknow that. The Bible says there is, that he foreknows, and then we were like, well, then maybe it doesn't matter anyway, and so what, what's the point? And you, you, you know the, all the wrestling, and sometimes instead of thinking in terms of like, like a fork, maybe it's like God in his infinite wisdom knows what will happen if we choose A, B, C, or D, and a, a hundred other possibilities, and all of the different places that that could take us. You think God in his mind is not capable of imagining every possible scenario of every possible choice? He's actually very capable of that. If you think he's not, you don't understand the mind and the heart of God. He, he can foreknow choices that you didn't ever make. He's that big. He's that wise. Our attempts 
to bring it down into our understanding is actually a minimization of God. And we've been very guilty of it too many times. And my, my concern, and this is why I wanted to kind of acknowledge this, my concern is that something like a graphic does exactly that, and I absolutely don't want to. He is infinitely bigger than any illustration or graphic that I can ever put up there. Just somehow help, trying to help us understand that this is a relational aspect, that there's a connection between God's sovereignty and our responsibility, our choice. Now go to the next slide. Ephesians chapter 6, we're picking it up in verse 10. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against ruler, the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all of the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. I, oh my, you're not going to talk about the devil this morning, are you? Yeah. Let's talk about him. C.S. Lewis writes in his book, Mere Christianity, that there are essentially two views of good and evil. One is what he calls dualism, which is that there is a good and there is an equal power that is evil. And that these powers are constantly at war with each other, but that they're equal. And he says there's a part of that that he says is actually kind of attractive in explaining the universe. Like we look around, and are you kidding? We see plenty of evil, right? You see some good, and you see some evil. And, and one, of the, um, one of the attempts or the attacks or, or strategies is what I'm trying to say, of the enemy has been to get a whole group of people or a whole culture to just blur the lines. Like where nothing's really completely good and nothing's really evil. It's like, eh, it's better and worse. But we have a hard time just being that distinct and that clear and saying, well, that is clearly evil. And so C.S. Lewis says there's, a, there's an attraction to that idea that there is these, these two equal opposing forces, but he says there is a problem with it also with dualism, and he says it's not essentially the Bible's description of what is going on in the universe, because he says if they are equal in power, wouldn't they both be convinced that they were the superior or the good? 
And he says, where do we even get these ideas that there is a good and a bad and that one is better than the other? He says, we have this language that's just built into us that we intuitively accept, and every person actually accepts this, that there is good and that there is evil. And even people who completely reject the idea of a sovereign God or a God that exists at all do so on the basis of their idea of good and evil. And he, listen to them. They'll say, well, people who believe in God are just using it as a crutch. They need to take responsibility. That would be good. Right? It's intuitive. And so C.S. Lewis says that, intu- that intuition that there is good and evil comes to us by our maker and creator God, but they are not equal forces. Because over good and evil is a standard. That's God. In other words, there must be an absolute standard of truth and righteousness that defines it. That's God. And so he's saying, here you go, Christian. You want to explain what's going on in your life? You're in a battle. You are at war. Don't think for a minute that there are not forces that you don't see who are constantly opposing you and trying to twist things in your mind and your heart. You are at war. And he says, when you wrestle, don't think you're wrestling against flesh and blood. Right? Now, we live in a day where there's a lot of wrestling against flesh and blood. Oh my goodness, I can't believe what that kind of person thinks. Liberals are convinced that the conservatives are the biggest idiots you've ever seen, and vice versa. And we're constantly wrestling against flesh and blood. And Paul says, this is not the nature of your battle as a believer in Christ. The nature of your battle is actually against unseen forces that are evil, that are constantly attacking you. So he says, therefore, put on the whole armor of God. Whose armor? It's God's armor. And if you went through Ephesians 6, this, this text that I just read, and you said, I am going to look and underline everything that is of God, you would have multiple places where you would underline, this is of God, the source is Him, He is the source of truth, He's the source of righteousness. And then if you would underline and say, well, this is the part that I must do, you could also underline a number of things. He says, you need to put it on. It's God's. You need to put it on. And he talks about, like he uses these words like truth and righteousness. He's like, you need to literally identify yourself, like clothe yourself with what is truth. You can't go skipping through life. It's like, oh, everything's fine. Like, no, there is error and there is truth. And if you believe the error, it's going to screw everything up. He's the absolute standard of truth. There is righteousness, there is unrighteousness, there is good and there is evil. We are in a battle. And our battle is against these authorities. And so he goes down through this, and then he starts to summarize all of this up, and he says, and praying at all times in the Spirit 
with all prayer and supplication. If prayer, if prayer is, the, is the means by which God brings heaven's will to earth, then prayer is the means by which God defeats the enemy in our lives. It is as we pray that we begin to understand truth. We begin to understand God's righteousness. He talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is, he says, which is the Word. We open His written Word. We listen to the revealed Word in our heart. We, we listen for God to show us truth. We submit ourselves to His righteousness. Prayer is absolutely essential if you're going to live in victory. Now, if you don't care, you're like, I don't really care that much. I'm okay with the devil doing whatever he wants to do with my life. I'm okay with the devil deceiving me. I'm okay with the devil screwing up my definition of morality. I'm okay with the devil taking my peace. Then don't pray. But if you're not okay with that, if you're not okay with deception, if you're not okay with unrighteousness, if you're not okay with turmoil and anxiety and a complete lack of peace, if you're not okay with watching it happen in people's lives around you, then get on your knees and pray. Because you are in a battle. Because we are at war. In this season, in this time, God has sovereignly chosen to allow evil to exist. I'm not going to try to explain to you why, because He's God. But in order for love and faith to exist, there has to be an alternative. And that alternative is evil. And so we live in a world where He talks about the enemy as a ruler of this age. That's a biblical term. Like, what do you mean? Didn't you just say God is sovereign? Yeah, he's sovereign. He's over it all. And one day, he has promised that he will crush the enemy's head. And that all existence of evil will one day be put away. Revelations is just a beautiful passage. And, and, and you know, set aside all your ideas of, of the apocalyptic language and everything else. Revelations is written in a context of to people who are going through hard times, who are going through suffering, and it's a difficult time for them. They were being persecuted, and God reveals to John the Revelator some, some glimpses into what is really going on behind the scenes. And one of the things that's going on behind the scenes, and you find in Revelation chapter 8, you find this, the, the opening of these seals. And regardless of your eschatology and what you believe, this is fascinating. This view where he says, and then I saw this bowl that had incense in it. And he describes the incense in Revelations 8, and he says the incense that's in the bowl is the prayers of the saints. That's literally what he says. He says that the prayers, so picture this bowl in heaven where your prayers are there. And it says and the, the, the smell goes up before God day and night, like perpetually. 
your prayers in heaven as an incense before God. And then it gets even crazier because the angel then takes his scepter and he dips it into the bowl, which is the prayers of the saints, and he spreads it out across the earth, and it literally shakes the earth. Thunder and lightning, judgment. Listen, if you were a Christian, when you get that letter for the first time, and you're like, we are going through some difficult stuff. There's so much injustice in the world. Everything seems to have gone wrong. Stuff's not right. Is God ever going to do anything about this? Is He ever going to set this right because it's so wrong? And you're reading through it and you're like, oh, there's a day coming where the seal of His judgment will be unleashed and He will set all things right again and somehow in the economy of heaven he uses the prayers of his saints to do it and that deep cry in us for justice for things to be made right ought to cause us to pray the sense of things have not gone well we live in a broken world that is at battle ought to cause us to pray. Prayers like, Lord, come quickly. Lord, set things right. Because He, in fact, will. And there's something about that prayer that says, goes up before God day and night. Are your prayers in heaven? Are you planning to put any there this week? Like, I'm not making any of this up. It's just in the Bible. Are your prayers there? Have you battled in prayer? He says here in Ephesians, he says, supplication, constantly interceding for the saints. It's like keep praying for each other because we are in a battle. Is there anyone in your life right now that you look at and you're like, wow, the enemy's really blinded their minds like there's deception happening and you start trying to imagine ways that you can talk them and argue them into the truth without understanding that it's not really an argument to be won it's a battle to be fought are you praying are you praying amber if you guys want to go ahead and come on up i need to bring it to a close Here's, here's how I want to kind of just summarize this this morning. God has, in his immense power and his sovereignty, provided for you and I a means by which we can respond and relate to him. We worship, we love, we obey, and we pray. Like you can go almost anywhere and talk about Love being a, a key part of our faith and people nod their heads. Yeah, yeah, love's important. It is. You can talk about obedience. You're going to lose a few people. But anywhere you go, you talk about prayer being essential. It's like, yeah, man, I sure hope other people are praying because <laughs> I'm really busy. I got a lot of stuff going Henderson talks about how the enemy brings these weapons of mass distraction. 
Have you noticed that? It brings these weapons of mass distraction where there's just constantly something distracting us. And we wind up saying yes to everything else except prayer. And then we wonder why that temptation comes along and we just fold like paper. Or we wonder why that message of discouragement hits and we just buy into it. Walk around for days with this mud pile in our head of just how awful our lives are. Doubting the grace of God. Doubting the goodness of God. Doubting whether He is really sovereign, whether He's really at work in our lives. I have battled all those things and so have you. But I have found the immense relief that the answers to those moments is not try harder. The answers to those moments is to sit with God, come into His presence, experience His grace, experience His transformation. I just heard it on Tuesday. It was just fantastic time, wonderful time of praying together. Thank you so much. There was quite a crowd here. Like I, I've never seen a crowd like that at a prayer time, so thank you. But I, but I heard it again in several of your testimonies just saying, I was battling this and then just spent time in the presence of God. And the circumstances didn't change, but oh my goodness, the, the perspective on them changes. Like the way that it affects me changes. A battle was won. A battle was won in that moment. Are you winning your battles? Are you praying? You believe in an all-powerful God. Would you just bow your heads with me? Lord, this morning, you know the battles that are represented in this room right now. Battles against the temptation, battle against fear, battles against discouragement, battling sin, battling deceptional lies, battling confusion. The ones that I, I didn't even think to name, where you know where the battles are right now. stir us up to not only pray for ourselves, but to pray for each other. That we would experience victory as we fight these battles. God, open our eyes. Like Paul said earlier in Ephesians, open the eyes of your heart. Open the eyes of our heart, Lord we would see the reality of, of the life that we are living and where we are living. Expose error. Expose evil for what it is. Give us a hunger after righteousness, a hunger for truth. God, you and you alone can do this. I can't do it, but you can. God, we submit ourselves to you. And we are tired of being defeated. We want to walk in victory. And I pray that you would do a fresh and new thing in every one of our hearts and it would spread outside the, the walls of this building and into our community and that people would find more freedom from the, from the captivity of the enemy than they've ever experienced. Lord, that we would see a day where you are, where you're running 
where your word is, is, it, is, is experiencing power in new dimensions. So God, win these battles. And God, thank you that one day, that one day this battle will be over and that we will experience the freedom from the attacks and the battle of the enemy. Thank you for the hope that we have through Jesus. Let's pray it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me and we'll sing this last song.